Welcome to the East End Fellowship Podcast. East End Fellowship is a community of Christians located in Richmond, Virginia, with the goal of seeing every person become a disciple of Jesus and live in the joy and justice of God's kingdom. Our spiritual family meets weekly in house churches and on Sundays at our large gathering. The following is a teaching from our time together. We hope you feel encouraged, challenged, and delighted by what you hear. Yeah, so uh, so I'm excited for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons is we are in week two of our current sermon series, I Am. And um, throughout this sermon series, we are focusing on the question of how God has revealed himself throughout all of Scripture. And so in the first half of the sermon series, we're um, kind of honing in on the Old Testament and <clears throat> different ways that God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And then in the second half of this series, we're going to focus on Jesus's I am statements in the Gospel of John. Um, in that Gospel, Jesus talks about how he's the bread of life, how he's the way, the truth, and the life, how he is the resurrection, this whole host of things. And so um, a lot of what we're doing in this series is thinking about who is this God who's revealed himself as I am so last week, we kicked things off, and we were reminded of how this great I am is an active reality, how God is limitless, how God is responsive to our suffering, right? We focused on um, the story of the burning bush and how God encounters Moses there to liberate Israel. And we kind of asked two main questions in that, in that sermon. One was, what Egypt might God be calling us into in order to bring liberation in the same way he called Moses to re-enter Egypt? And then also what Egypt might, what God might be calling us to, um, to leave, right? So that we can leave the things that are preventing our worship. And so in some, who is this God who offers us liberation and invites us to be free, to free others, um, so that we can all actually worship God? That's what we've been kind of talking about. And so today we're going to continue exploring this question. And we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So this passage may be familiar to some of you. It, it begins with the Ten Commandments. And the first three commandments most directly pertain to the posture of worship that we should have towards God. It begins with God identifying as the Lord, <clears throat> or Yahweh in the Hebrew, and as the one who brought them up out of Egypt. One thing I find fascinating about this passage is that God has this habit of introducing himself by referring to history. We saw last week that he first introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he ties himself to Moses' family's history, his people's history. And now that they are free from Egypt, God introduces himself as the one who led them out. 
what we notice throughout Scripture is that when God makes these types of statements, he is always communicating more than just history. God's actions in history reveal God's identity. And I think in human experience, we're, not, we're generally not um, used to this, right? An example is whenever someone refers to someone else as acting out of character, right? Times when someone does something that does not reflect who they really are or who they want to be. But God never does this. There's never a disconnect or a dissonance between who God is and what God does. <clears throat> God's actions always give us insight into who this God really is. God's work to bring Israel out of Egypt reveals that he is a divine liberator. And as the scripture for today unfolds, we see that this God is also really concerned about worship. You shall have no other gods before me. When God sets out to give his law, the first thing he says is that he is first. Israel had been immersed in a society filled with a variety of gods, but the supremacy of Yahweh in their lives was the first thing that should set them apart. And why is this God worthy of worship? Because he's the Lord and because he brought them out of Egypt. God wants to remind Israel of what he has done for them. It's fascinating to me how often God reminds Israel of this. In the next book, Leviticus, in the Bible, God introduces himself as the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt nearly a dozen times. Why does God keep connecting who he is with the Exodus as if they could have forgotten? It literally just happened. I introduce myself as Coley Pastor every time I get up here, but that's because they're new people and there's people tuning in online, right? There's a reason for that. Why does God feel the need to keep reminding these people of the Exodus when the Exodus just happened? I think we see the answer later in the story in Exodus chapter 32, and so we're going to jump forward to that. Fast forward, and by this point in the story, Israel has come out of Egypt, and Moses is going up to the mountain on Mount Sinai again to talk with God. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people who you brought up out of Egypt, so you got to switch things up here, <laughs> have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed it to it and said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. <clears throat> so, as you notice, so quickly, Israel forgets what God has done for them and begins turning elsewhere. No wonder God is always reintroducing himself and reminding them of what he has done for them. They quickly become impatient and turn to other things. It's so tempting to allow other things to replace God in our lives, especially when God doesn't show up in the time frame that we want or in the way that we want. Uh, years ago, Dominic and I were uh, taking a trip to Chicago. We just arrived. We had been there like a day or so. 
And um, while we were staying at this hotel, this is before kids, um, I remember going out of, uh, to the parking garage by myself. Um, but I, was, I basically had a meeting I needed to go to. I don't know why I had a meeting right out of town, but I had a meeting I was trying to get to. So I'm going out to the parking deck, and I thought that our car was on the third floor. So I go to the third floor, and I'm, you know, clicking the, the, the lock button on this rental, right? Because I'm trying to hear the horn, so I know where this car is. So I'm clicking, I'm clicking, I'm clicking, nothing. So I say, okay, you know, I might have just got the numbers off. So I go up to the fourth floor, I keep clicking, go to the fifth floor, keep clicking, go to the sixth floor, keep clicking. Crickets, nothing, silence. After walking back down all six floors, clicking the button so much that my hands started to get tired, I called Diamond, I say, Diamond, I don't know what's going on, I can't find this car. Diamond says, it's on the third floor. I said, all right, I've been to the third floor, but I'll go back. So I go back to the, uh, the third floor and I start clicking again. I don't hear anything. I'm getting frustrated because now I'm late for my meeting and I'm also sweaty because I've been climbing stairs for the last 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden I have this realization. I remember that there are two identical keys on this keychain. So it occurs to me that I should try the other set of keys. So fast forward two seconds and I'm hearing the glorious sound of a car horn. And what I realized was that although both sets of keys looked identical, one set of keys had a dead battery. They looked the same, but only one of them had any power to give me direction in my life. I think that we can find ourselves in these types of situations with God. We can be trying things that look like God, things that look like they can give us what we need, things that even feel familiar to us, but they don't have any power. And relying on them leaves us lost and lacking. Sometimes instead of waiting for God's voice, we prioritize all sorts of other voices in our lives. Sometimes we prioritize good advice that we think we're getting from ungodly people. Sometimes instead of stopping to listen for God's voice, we just default to whatever's most familiar or what's most comfortable. But only the, sor only the source that is God can give us real power. Israel knew the direction to the promised land long before they were free, but they didn't have any power to get there. Aaron creates this image of a golden calf that looks familiar to the Israelites, but it doesn't have any power. And if we're not following the true God, we may as well be wandering, whether well, that's wandering like Israel in the desert or wandering like me in a parking deck. <laughs> Too often, we settle for poor substitutes for God. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God rebukes uh, Israel for much later for a similar sin. And he says this, he says, uh, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God gives this image of people settling for this, this water that cannot satisfy them instead of clinging to God. And when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he picks up on this metaphor to say that he is the living water. And worshiping him in spirit and truth will mean that she will never have to thirst again. She won't have to come back to that well because Jesus' water is better than the water at that well. God is always better than our substitutes. They might seem the same. They might make the same promises to us. They might even look the same. But only one has power. Now, for some of us, the issue is not so much that we put a lot of other things before God, but rather that our idol is a false idea of who this God is. We see this play out in the story of the golden calf that I read earlier. Most people interpret this story as though Israel decided to forsake their God to turn to another idol. But if you study the passage, you'll see that 
in the context of um, their celebration. They say they're going to make a festival before the Lord. And in the Hebrew, they use the divine name Yahweh. And they say that this God brought them up out of Egypt. And English translations often refer to the calf and the gods there as in plural because it's the Hebrew word Elohim. But Elohim can be rendered in the singular or the plural in English. And it's often used in the Old Testament to talk about Yahweh. So what this means is that Israel may not have seen themselves as turning from Yahweh. Instead, they were attempting to worship a created representation of Yahweh. That's why they refer to Yahweh in the text. In other words, some scholars suggest that the Israelites were attempting to build a representation of God in the form of a calf. They constructed a false image of the real God. And I think we can do this too. Sometimes our idolatry isn't as simple as turning from God towards something else. Instead, it can look like constructing and worshiping a counterfeit Yahweh. Sometimes our response to God making us in his image is to try to return the favor. So we may find ourselves settling for a prosperity God, a God who's primarily concerned with us having a ton of wealth and who wants to ensure that we never have a bad day. Or a punitive God, a God who's always ready to judge us, ready to send us straight to hell if we just sin one time. Or the opposite extreme, a permissive God, a God who is merciful to us, but is not actually interested in our holiness. Others of us might worship a patriotic God, a God whose ways look more like a partisan platform than the peculiar kingdom in which the first shall be last. Some of us serve at the altar of the patriarchal God, a hyper-masculine God more concerned with demanding submission than modeling service. Or even a prejudiced God, a God whose cultural preferences reflect one racial group but masquerade as the way of Christ. The primary difference between these gods and the one true God is that while the true God will make us free, each of these other gods will only leave us in bondage. A prosperity gospel God will leave us enslaved to consumeristic greed. A period of God will leave us in a prison of the fear of judgment. A permissive God will never actually free us from our addictions. A patriotic God will leave us in xenophobic chains of Christian nationalism. A patriarchal God will leave us under the oppression of sexism. And a prejudiced God will leave us in a prison of white supremacy. These false gods will always leave us bound. But thanks be to God that the great I am has come to actually set us free. God told Moses to lead the people out of Egypt so that they could go worship him freely. Are we willing to leave Egypt and the false gods of Egypt so that we can worship the true God, the real I am? The great I am invites us into freedom, to worship him as he truly is, to reject the golden calves all around us and even those that are still living within us. Do we want to be worshipers? When Yahweh says that we must have no other gods before him, are we willing to obey him? and to worship only him? Or are we still clutching our golden calves? Worship is essentially about value. It's our response to what we value most in life. We don't have to be taught how to worship. We inherently structure our lives around the things that are of highest concern to us. Some of our most common idols are certain relationships in our lives, or success, or career, the respect or approval of others, power, money, pleasure, ourselves. And these things are not inherently bad things. But sometimes our idolatry does not lie in what we want, but how bad we want it. 
Sometimes our idolatry can even look like wanting a good thing too much. We can often tell whether this is true for us by asking ourselves, if we don't get that thing that we want, how do we respond? Will we still worship God? When we don't get the job that we want, when we don't get the spouse that we want, when we don't get the exact type of church that we want, are we chasing after these things or chasing after Jesus? God promises that if we seek first God and his kingdom, we will have everything we need. What do we value most in our lives? What do we worship? We can know what we worship by following the trail of our time, our affection, our energy, our money. What takes up most of our free time? What do we spend most of our time thinking about during the day? What do we spend a lot of our money on? We may not want to admit it, but worship is about what we do much more than what we say. When we say yes to God's command to have no other gods before him, our lives will look differently. Pursuing and pleasing God becomes our focus and transforms us into the worshipers we were always made to be. People who become free and commit to seeing others free too. Whether that be freedom from systemic injustice that's all around us or freedom from personal sin that's within us. Who do we worship? Who are we living for? I remember hearing um, a story of a, a young pianist. Um, he'd been learned, trying to learn how to play piano, and so he committed to taking lessons, and he'd going through this whole year of this intense training, and then there was this capstone, like, recital and, you know, concert. And so after all these hours and days and, you know, weeks of training and preparing, he gets there, and he performs, and he does an amazing job, right? The crowd is spellbound as he ends, everybody standing up, standing ovation, cheering, all these things. Everybody's going wild. But then he looks sad. And after everything's over, someone comes up to him and they say, hey, like, why, why are you so down when everybody stood up for you? And his response was, my instructor was still sitting. And his opinion is the only one that mattered to me. If we are to live for the most high God, what God says about us is all that matters. Aaron forgot this. This is why he was in idolatry, right? Aaron's idol was not the calf. It was pleasing people. Are we willing to worship the real God even when it comes to the cost of pleasing other people? When people want to be first in our life, are we willing to put God ahead of them? Are we willing to worship when no one seems to understand or it feels like we have to worship all by ourselves? Are we willing to worship when our friends and our family don't get why we have given our very lives for a crucified Savior that we believe is alive? In the Old Testament, worship required a sacrifice. This is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What are we willing to sacrifice to worship the Most High God in light of what Jesus has sacrificed for us? Worship is essentially about a response to two things, who God is and what God has done. In the case of Israel, God had revealed himself as a deliverer who had freed them from the bondage of Egypt. And in our own context, Christ has revealed himself as Savior and has delivered us out of the bondage of sin. So we see that God is always seeking our worship and always seeking to remind us of why we should worship him. God is a jealous God. <clears throat> and this jealousy arises from the truth that he is worthy of our exclusive devotion. But it also has, has a con as a consequence, as a consequence of God's deep love for us because he desires for us to enjoy the benefits of a life marked by surrender to him. We can be the kind of people who respond to his command to have no gods before him. 
In John chapter 15, Jesus tells the disciples that if they love him, they will obey his commands. And I love this because it reminds us that obedience is an outgrowth of a cultivated love. This is why worship isn't about willpower. It's about allowing God to cultivate a love in us so deep in response to his love for us that we place nothing before him in our lives. That's the invitation before us today. So maybe you're here and you know, <clears throat> know there are things in your life that have taken God's place. Today is a chance to lay those things down. That could be a specific idol, a practice, a person that you realize has more influence on you than the will of God. Or it could be a false idea of who God is that has kept you from seeing God clearly. God's primary posture towards us is neither permissive nor punitive. It's redemptive. That means that God acknowledges our shortcomings, but is loving enough to take our brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. God has not given up on us. In fact, the great I am has claimed us as his own. And Jesus promises in John chapter 10 that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. Not even us. Thanks be to God. So I'm going to pray for us. Please join me. Gracious God, thank you that you are the great I am. Thank you that you are a God worthy of worship, and thank you that you are a God who delivers. Thank you that just as you heard the cries of Israel back in, the, in Exodus chapter 3, God, you hear the cries of your people today. God, your ears are not deaf to what your creation needs. God, your heart is not hardened such that you are not open to pursuing us, forgiving us, and inviting us into relationship with you. Thank you that, God, you have not forgotten us. So, God, we confess and repent for the ways that we've forgotten you. God, we're reminded of how Israel, most have been going not for too long, but, God, they quickly forgot about what you had said to not erect a, gra- a graven image. And they turned away. So, God, we confess the ways that we have turned away. So, God, we invite you. We ask you to forgive us, to cleanse us. We thank you that... Christ coming, Christ dying, and Christ raising is evidence that you knew all about the sins that we have committed and will commit, yet you still were willing to die. God, thank you that that is a statement of your unconditional love towards us. So God, we pray that by your spirit we might be able to embrace that love, receive that love, and then model that love in the day-to-day in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. God, I pray that we would show up as worshipers. And that people would would see us and they would wonder, who is this God that made such a difference in this person's life? God, I pray we would always direct people back to you, that they might encounter you for themselves and be made whole and be made free. So God, we pray for that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. We appreciate you tuning in to the East End Fellowship Podcast. To see the full video of the sermon you just listened to, and for the best way to get in touch with us, check the show notes for all of our social media channels. For more information about how you can get involved with our community and to sign up for our newsletter, please visit eastendfellowship.org. Thanks again for listening.